listening to RMD Studios. Welcome to The Table, a podcast for leaders to build community, have conversations, and share resources. special edition of the Table Podcast. A few weeks ago, I invited Mark Ensminger to share insights with our kids leaders. Mark oversees the church ministries department on a national level for the Assemblies of God. Now, Mark is a high-level leader with incredible insight, and he has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in our culture as well as our churches around the nation. We invited Mark to share about five major trends he is seeing, specifically in kids' ministry, but also how those trends are steering the local church. Now get ready for an incredibly relevant and timely talk on how these major trends of kids' ministry are affecting the local church and your congregation each and every Sunday. Uh, so the way I've got it kind of flowing tonight is there's a couple of topics um, as uh, Sean and I were chatting about this. One is Kidman Trends and uh, basically have four trends that I'm going to be going through and uh, kind of how they uh, impact the church or what the church's response needs to be towards these trends. Uh, once I get through those four trends, I'm going to pause uh, maybe there's trends that uh, you see and you want to throw them out there. I'm open to that. Maybe you've got questions about uh, something that I say and we want to dialogue on that. So we'll take a few minutes to talk about the trends when I'm done. The second topic then is going to be on leadership development. So it's, it's about growing and uh, really what does it take to, uh, to be a leader who grows. The third section then will be intentional ministry. And then uh, if there's any additional questions, that are uh, kind of outside the scope of those three topics that we want to talk about. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll take some time for that. Um, and I, I believe we were supposed to be done at, uh, was it 9.30, 10 o'clock, your time or my time? Good. Yeah, we'll keep rolling. We'll have a lot of fun. And if you fall asleep, uh, that's not a problem. Just kind of turn off your video and I won't have any, I won't have any idea. So I won't be offended by that at all. So um, but anyways, we're going to jump in. Kidman Trends, um, this was a, a great topic. It really stretched me uh, to put on to, uh, to paper some thoughts about what I see happening in uh, the world and the culture today and how it impacts um, children's ministries in particular. Um, some of these trends and the insights I'll share have uh, some, some recent research that's come out to back that. Um, others are things that uh, probably you and I are, are seeing together, but I'm going to give you some of my thoughts and perspectives. Um, you may also look at these trends and say, you know what, that's not what I'm dealing with in my church because trends are one of those dynamics that you can look at trends in a global context or a bigger picture, a macro picture, but once you get into your specific context, you might not see it or you might not see it yet. Some of these trends um, may be a little bit of an anomaly, but they may be just around the corner. So listening to these trends and kind of keying into them might help you be ready if you start to see some of these things taking place in the community where you live. Um, we did ministry for 14 years in South Dakota. Um, so probably not a lot different from some of the places where some of you are serving. Uh, rural communities, a lot of spread out locations. And, uh, you know, we would, we would go to conferences, we would see things that are taking place in the church world, and we're like, we're still two or three years out from some of that, just because it sometimes takes that long to, to get to where we are. So as I share some of these trends, um, just kind of take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but know that these might be issues that are coming your way if they're not facing them right now. Um, some of them are going to be, you know what, there's, uh, there's really nothing new here as far as awareness of the trend, but I, I hope you'll key into some of the insights as well as the church's response. I think that's really key, is what's the church going to do as a result of the awareness of this trend that's going on? So with that, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to tackle the big one first. Um, the first trend is this, gender issues are not going away anytime soon. 
really the, the transgender movement, if we can call it that, uh, just for our, our purposes, is, is not going to go away. There is going to be an increased pressure on churches to not only welcome, but celebrate and support children in their gender discovery. Uh, we are seeing that in some states already. We're seeing it impact uh, counseling in the Northeast. There's been some rulings that uh, if you're a professional counselor, uh, you could be in violation of a law if you counsel a minor in a way that says that they should be comfortable with their um, their birth uh, gender identity. So if they were born with male anatomy and you're counseling them to, you are a boy, that could be criminal uh, in some states. We're seeing husbands and wives with uh, uh, that are divorced, um, that have shared custody, where one spouse wants their child to express themselves one way, and the other spouse says no, and it's going to a court of law. Uh, we are seeing um, a um, it, when when children are being born that birth certificates now have an option for boy, girl, or, you know, a sign later. So baby X. So they'll, they'll determine their gender at a later date. Uh, Facebook has, I think, over 60 different gender options. Uh, Tinder, the dating app, has over 40 gender options. Can you imagine the dating world if there are 40 options out there for who you might be engaging with? I mean, that there is a real big issue that's going on. And, and the, the reality is, is this trend, these gender issues are not going away anytime soon. In fact, they're going to be pressuring the churches to conform. Um, this is already taking place in the public school. So recently there was, um, um, I, I tried to do a little bit of research, didn't have a lot of time on this, but I saw some people celebrating. And I do, I do know that on uh, some LGBTQ websites, they're supporting like a trans awareness day or a trans awareness week. Uh, they're even encouraging in schools that people will read books to children to, to help them become more comfortable with transgender types of things. So if they're pressuring them in the schools, it's not much further for them to become pressuring them uh, within the local church. In fact, you'll also see that uh, that teachers, when they're having their in-service and their trainings, they're being trained in what's called gender sensitivities. So, for instance, on your first days of class, the teachers are introducing themselves and saying, you know, my, my name is Mark. My preferred pronoun is he, uh, him, and, you know, what, whatever, or they or there, if you prefer not to say if you're male or female. And so as kids are going around and introducing themselves, they're also encouraged to respond, well, which pronoun do you prefer? Well, it doesn't take long for the, the giggles and the kind of cute, funny things to become offensive to the teacher who's been trained. And now all of a sudden, if you think that's weird or out of the ordinary, you're embarrassed and you're shamed. So, so people who come in with kids who come in with a biblical worldview, even as you know into elementary age groups and begin to look at this, are going to be challenged. That pressure ultimately is going to get into the home and it's going to get into the church. Um, here's what else I see happening: the scientific community is beginning to release evidence in support of biological sex and gender alignment. So, if you have male anatomy you are a male. If you have female anatomy, you're, the biology and your gender are aligned according to scientific evidence. No surprises there. What's really cool about this is they're taking it from a scientific perspective, and it happens to align with the biblical worldview. And I will, I'll post a link um, maybe at one of the question times uh, that, will, that will give the article that supports this. Um, James Emery White posted this from his blog a couple weeks ago. Um, who wrote a recent book on um, Meet Generation Z. He's, I think, a Presbyterian minister up in the Northeast, does a lot with generational types of things, and he posted on this. What I find fascinating is the scientific community is releasing this information that gender is binary. You're male or you're female. It's not fluid. It's not a spectrum. It's either male or female, and it aligns with your anatomy and your biology, with the exception of the very, very few 
um, uh, anomalous uh, bi biological people who are born that may or may not have some questions. So leaving those aside, understanding that those may exist and they do exist, but very, very rare. Gender is binary. Um, even with that scientific evidence, though, this movement is not logical. It is emotional and it is spiritual. And it's going to continue to erode at the church's ability to minister to kids. So we have to be aware of it. Really, the best chance for a reversal of this transgender movement is, number one, a revival. You know, it is a return to the word. It is a return to a biblical worldview. It is making sure that we know what God says about our identity, who we are in Christ, who he's created us to be, who he's created us for. Those are all key pieces of that. The second thing that is a hope that we may see happen, ironically, is that feminists and parents will get so fed up with this male to female transition, particularly as it pertains to sports and scholarships, that they will begin to reject what is going on with this, this transgender movement. However, it will probably not reverse it like a spiritual revival would. It will only make it subside until there's a new way to push this agenda forward. Because remember, we don't battle against flesh and blood here. We're battling against the spiritual wickedness, the spiritual beings in high places. And so they don't give up very easily if the people who are going to battle on their behalf all of a sudden take a back seat. It continues to push forward and push forward. So revival is really the, the, the hope that we have for a reversal. With, without that happening, you're going to continue to see the, the pressure increase. That means in the church, we can no longer say about gender, it's not normal. That cannot be our go-to to parents and to kids when they start talking about these questions of it's not normal. So what's the appropriate response then? It's again, it's biblical. What's God's design? What was his intent? How did he create man and woman? What does the scripture say about this? We have to create a biblical worldview for a biblically illiterate, primarily, home and community that we live in. The children need to know what God's plan was originally. Um, so ministry to the individual will be essential, even in a group setting. We have to know kids' stories. There are kids coming to probably already to your church that you may wonder what gender they are and you don't know how to approach them. This requires an individual approach to ministry. We have to tell our leaders to slow down and get to know the stories of the children. And we love every child. So it has to, it's essential that we do individual ministry. Secondly, we must posture our teaching as what God's design is and what his plan is. Transgender is no different than any other sin or vice or temptation that comes at us. But sometimes the latest thing gets treated as if it's the worst thing ever. And the truth is, if we would teach against stealing and lying and bullying, then we, and because God is for the truth, and he is for love, and he is for acceptance, then we should speak on what he's for related to gender, that you would not just explore what you think you are, but who God's designed you to be. So that's a key, is what we teach what we're for. Another key for the church's response is we need to help leaders build relationship with a safe, uh, an, an environment that is safe both emotionally and socially. Here's what I mean by this. Safety gets a lot of attention when it comes to this idea of physically safe. So background checks, security cameras, no, you know, all the interviews, no, no pedophiles, all those things. That's, that's a physically safe environment. Emotionally safe is the leader's responsibility. When a child feels emotionally safe, it's because a leader is taking time to know them and accept them, to say, you as an individual are important to me today. I'm going to get to know you and your story. That's an emotional safety. I'll share some stories a little bit later about this, and you'll begin to kind of see what, what I mean by that. But socially safe is peer-to-peer. -peer. So no belittling, no bullying, none of those kinds of things can be take place. And so the leaders need to know they have to create a safe environment. If a child comes in 
Um, and let's not even say that they're proclaimed to be transgender, but let's just say that in the spectrum of gender, spectrum of gender, I just said it's not a spectrum, that as you, as you move forward, your preferences. So sometimes not every boy is stereotypical like a boy. Not every boy likes to hunt and fish and be rough and tumble. Some boys are different. Those boys, if, it, if we're not careful, will begin to think that maybe they're not actually a boy on what we do in the church. Let me give you an example. Um, if you were to evaluate the worship environment for your kids on a Sunday morning, who typically, which gender typically engages in worship more, boys or girls? Raise this hand. I don't know if it's right or left for you. So raise this hand if you think it's girls and raise this hand if you think it's boys. Which one do you think uh, activate? Yeah, I see a lot of, uh, for me, it's right hands, engage in worship more, right? So if boys don't engage in worship typically as much, but the leaders aren't aware of differences, if we're what we say is gender blind, and they go to the boys and say, you know what, why can't you worship more like the girls do? We're communicating a couple things. First of all, you might be communicating to those boys that worship is for girls, okay? Secondly, if there are boys who are getting into worship, then they may be questioning their gender because it's the topic of the day. And so we have to be very careful in how we communicate to boys and girls related to things that are so understanding God's design and that, yes, in within the gender, there are preferences and, and not every boy is rough and tumble and, and not every girl is afraid of taking risks. There are some differences between the gender and you can understand them. And when you know them, you can create an environment that's safe for everybody. So how does this play out? Well, in our church, uh, during the worship time, there's a handful of boys that love to go into the back of the sanctuary and they run in circles and they jump up and down and they dance. And it's not uncommon for leaders to come over and say, why don't you go up to the front and come up to the front? My approach is to come to those boys and say, I am so thankful that you're using your whole body to express worship to God. And it's okay to worship back here, but please make sure you're not distracting other kids while you do it. You see the difference? Is you're allowing them to express themselves to God and not making it an issue related to gender. So just a little insight there, creating some safety. Fourth thing is our response is this, to establish a biblical guide, use the Bible as the guide to speak of his design and what his plan for what is best. It's essential that the church and the homes and the individuals know how to engage scripture on their own and to see it as the absolute truth. What does this mean? Apologetics are important. And you say, well, we're teaching kids. Let me tell you, teaching kids is no longer just creatively telling Bible stories. Every time you open the Bible and you're teaching kids, you are communicating theology. Your theology matters. If we continue to just simply tell stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so they know the facts that there were three that went in and there were four when they peered through the window, you are not really equipping them with a biblical worldview if there is no connection to the God who says, you know what, you can stand up to the culture because of what God's called you to do and to be, and he will be with you even when it feels like you're going to burn up all around. So we have to make sure that we have apologetics and our theology is solid. So we understand that. So that's issue number one. Second issue is that second trend is that regular attendance is going to continue to decline uh, in the local church. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting as we see a lot of churches are showing growth, a growth trend in their numbers. So it's not uncommon for churches to, to be plateaued or to show some incline. It's not uncommon for churches to be in decline either, but it's not the number of people we're counting that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the frequency of attendance. So it used to be that a regular attender was there at least once, if not two or three times a week. When I grew up, it was Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and midweek. And when it was a missions convention, or a prayer week, you were there every night of the week as well, four times. Fast forward now to 30 or 40 years, giving you a little bit of a peek at my age. Uh, down the road, 
and you find now that the average attendee is three out of eight Sundays. So statistically, that's, again, three out of eight. So it's not even 50% of the time. There are three out of eight Sundays are they going to be there. Even what we would call the committed core will miss between 12 and 20 times a year. Think about that. Your committed core will miss at least once a month, almost twice a month. Statistics will show. Again, your church, your area might be a little bit different than that. Now, let's play that forward. Those statistics are primarily counting, who do you think? Moms and dads, family units, or individuals? Likely, they're counting the the parents or the family units. What, What that means is, in our children's ministry, if you have a divorced mom and dad, they may get counted as a family unit, but the child may not be there if there's a shared custody situation. So in our local churches, if it's three out of eight Sundays in your children's ministry, it may even be less than that. Now, there may be people that you see every single week, and because they're there almost every single week, you see them more frequently. And depending on the size of your ministry, those that are coming less frequently can almost become, uh, uh, you don't even realize when they're not there because they're there so infrequently. Here's the other thing of what's happening with this trend is many large churches have have given up on trying to keep attendance. So when I was on staff at a church, we would have a register. Maybe you do this at your church that you would sign your name and you'd pass it down the aisle. And at offering time, they'd collect the attendance register and our secretary would make sure that they knew who was there and who was missing. So you had an accurate report of attendance. You could also then know who's not showing up and you could go out and, hey, we missed you. Churches, many churches, especially larger churches, are giving up on attendance. Doesn't mean they're not counting. They just don't know individually who's there and who's not. Instead, what they're using is giving records or more importantly, giving trends. So they will know if you're a part of the church based on one of two things, your giving or your volunteer participation. Some may try to do a, an attendance record through a small group mechanism, like a life group, where the life group leader will report who's been a part of that. But again, who's probably not being counted in any of those? It's the kids. So unless you're keeping a record of the kids through your church check-in system, you're probably not going to get a record any other way. Um, So that's just one of the dynamics of the decline in in, in the the continuing trend of decline. Fractures in the family make it hard. Sports and academics are becoming increasingly more powerful and pulling people away uh, from attendance on Sunday morning. Um, And so these are some of the dynamics. So what is the church to do? What's our response? Well, a couple of things. One, we need to be all in on empowering the home and empowering a relational ministry. As the church gets bigger, it has to get smaller. You have to make sure that you have leaders and If there was ever an appeal to change how we recruit leaders, it is this. We can no longer be recruiting leaders who are simply coming to fill a slot. We have to recruit leaders who are invested in the life of a child. And when you're not their leader, that kid doesn't know who, there's no consistency for them. In fact, if you come every single week, you may be the most consistent thing that they have in their life. It's huge. So we have to empower the home and we have to empower relational ministry. We really need to get serious about what does it look like to empower the home. As churches, we need to invest, as as churches begin to invest in online staffing, don't forget about content and online ministry for children. What does that look like? How do you create content for the parents to share with their kids at home? We need to be thinking about that. We need to help parents understand what content's appropriate for kids on YouTube and other channels, on on Disney. Help them know how to navigate all of this stuff. We need to spread key messages across multiple weeks. If kids are only there three out of eight weeks and you teach on giving or grace or uh, salvation occasionally, Kids are not going to hear that message unless they happen to show up on the right Sunday. So there are key themes that you may have to repeat 
every single week for a series of six to eight weeks to make sure that kids are at least hearing at one time. That's going to be key. Um, you may need to, um, you know, if I heard, heard recently of a, of a family, a, a guy that came to church just every single week or every single Easter, that was the only time he showed up to church. It was, it was Easter. And he pulls the pastor aside afterwards and says, man, pastor, I'd come more often, but you really, your sermons kind of seem to be stuck in a rut uh, because every single Easter was all about, you know, the resurrection. Well, if we don't uh, continue to, to create that continuum of teaching, people are going to miss the key messages and they might show up at the wrong time. This is why I'm a proponent of like weekly offerings instead of monthly offerings. If you do BGMC, for instance, having a monthly focus on BGMC means kids that need to hear about generosity, compassion, giving, missions, if they're not there, they're never going to hear it. If they're always with mom or dad, the other parent on that Sunday, they're never going to hear it. So that's why I'm a big proponent for making it spread across multiple weeks so they hear those key messages uh, and, and a uh, at, at least once every couple of weeks when they come through. So then how do you handle that when kids come every single week and they hear that same message and that same theme? It's a reality. But at some point, those kids need to know, you know what, you need to hear this message. So if your friends at school need to hear about Jesus or need to hear about generosity, you know how to answer that question. So you can begin to pivot them and, and raise the level of leadership for them. You need to answer this question. How can I invest in the discipleship of children even if they attend less than 50% of the time. So how can we adequately disciple? That's a question you have to wrestle with in your church. Can you raise up parents as sports chaplains? So if they're going to be gone on Sunday, can you equip them with something to meet with their people and with their team and do a five-minute devotional with them so at least they're getting something spiritual? Can you teach kids how to share their faith? These would be some of the ways that we can help respond to the declining attendance in church. Let me move on to number three. I'm going to start to pick up the pace a little bit so that we can get through more of these. Uh, religiously involved parents choose the church primarily because of the children's ministry. And everybody said, yes, finally. Barna's report came out recently saying that when parents, engaged parents, spiritually engaged parents, the number one reason they will choose a specific church is because of the children's ministry. Children's pastors should be excited about this, printing it up, handing it out to board members and pastors and say, see, this is why we need budget. This is why we need training. This is why we need curriculum. This is why we need whatever it is you fill in the blank, right? Great news. 58% of engaged parents say children's ministry is the prime factor in choosing a church. What's the downside? Well, if the church, if that children's ministry no longer meets their needs, they will leave that church as quickly as they came. So the pressure is really there to produce something of significance. Uh, recently, I was at, at church and, and uh, my, my job, I volunteered on a Sunday morning. I get the job of teaching the Bible lesson, filling in in a classroom occasionally. And uh, this one Sunday morning, I was standing out with all the kids where they gather before we take them in for ministry. And uh, that dad showed up. You don't know what I'm talking about. He's on a mission, right? <laughs> and he was making a beeline for the classroom. Well, one, there's nobody in the classrooms at that point. So I knew he did not have all the information. So I interrupted him and one of the other leaders. We just interrupted him and said, hey, man, what's going on? He said, man, my kids have been saying that they're being bullied in, in this classroom. They've been being pushed down and they've been being bullied. And, and I want to talk to that leader. And I, I slowed him down. I said, I'll check it out. I'll look at that. I'll make sure that, you know, everything's going to be fine and talked with them. Later on, when I reconnected with him, he said, this same thing happened at a previous church. We talked to the pastor. The pastor's kids were the ones who were doing the bullying and they refused to do anything about it. And so we left the church. It's just one example of, yes, they will choose a church because of a children's ministry. Great. Leverage that for whatever you need to help your children's ministry. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that we're producing spiritual results in the kids and that we're really helping parents see the value of what we do because it's got to be greater than maybe what they're currently thinking that they're going to be getting. We have to help them. So I lead a hydrate huddle. In fact, Manny Melendez is in my hydrate huddle. And uh, he was a part of this in September when we did the survey with parents. Uh, and we rated uh, every children's ministry across four dimensions, safety, team, growth, and fun. And growth was spiritual growth. 
And across the board, every one of the churches, the parents and the leaders rated their church the lowest on spiritual growth. Why is that? It can't be because we're failing on spiritual growth. It's because it's the number one thing that they think the church should be excelling at. So they're looking more closely at what's happening spiritually. So that means that the question they ask about, did you have fun and what did you learn are key questions for us to think of intentionally every single week, helping their kids learn the word of God, helping their kids spend time in worship, helping their kids learn how to pray are key things that are going to help your kids get stay because they're going spiritually. Secondly would be relationship. They have to have peers that are their own age and there needs to be a leader that knows when they're not there. Think of it this way. If the parents in your ministry wrote you or one of your small group leaders and said, it's a special day for my child, would you write them a card that encourages them? Do the leaders or do you in your ministry know enough about that child to write something meaningful? If not, it may be a sign of intentional relationship building that you need to have happen in your local church so that you can help it become a little bit more sticky that way. So these create some new challenges. Um, another related trend is this people are attending multiple churches. Uh, so they will attend for a couple of months and then maybe they'll attend another church for a couple of months and they'll bounce back or they will attend one church on Sunday and a different church on Wednesday. This creates a huge dilemma when it comes to consistent discipleship because you don't know who's showing up when and what they're getting as far as their teaching and their training. So we need to understand those things. So it creates a, some significant challenges. So what do we do in the church? One is this, try to guide parents into greater consistency, just as an appeal to say, you be more consistent, be more consistent, it's not going to work. To try to get mom and dad to show up every single week as a, as a reminder isn't as effective as saying, hey, be a part of the mission of what the church is about. Engage with the mission, engage with the moments. So what are the moments you can celebrate in the life of a child? First Bible, um, uh, baptism. Uh, communion, salvation, um, all of these special moments, if you engage the parents in those, and then finally the movement, what's your church all about? Those three pieces will likely get parents and their kids more engaged in what you're doing. Find good at. Um, it's easy to compare ourselves in this Instagram world with the best pictures that somebody posted from last Sunday but that may not be you. What is it that you and your church can be really, really good at? Lean into that. Know that. It doesn't require always a massive budget. It just requires the discipline to know your church, to know what you can be good at, and really, really excel at those things. Know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Make sure to listen to the parents. What are they saying? Um, it's easy to sometimes disregard people as not really knowing what they're talking about, pay attention to what the parents and the leaders are saying in your ministry and design ministry to show spiritual growth and connections. Keep in mind that these are key things that moms and dads are looking for. Allow the, the, the fruit and the virtues, like the fruit of the spirit and the virtues to come out of a response of being connected to the savior more than the desired outcome of, the, of, of what you're doing. Last week I taught on the cycle of apostasy. It was so fun. I said, I'm going to teach you something that your parents have probably never heard of before. Said, say this with me, cycle of apostasy. And I explained how in the Old Testament, it was, you know, the blessing and they would obey and then they'd fall away and he'd send judgment and they'd cry out and they'd repent and he'd send and deliver and they would send in the blessing. And it was a cycle of apostasy. And I could just imagine them driving home and saying, what did you learn today? We learned about the cycle of apostasy. And they're like, what are you talking about? But it's crucial for people to understand the spiritual dynamics of what's going on. And again, I can't say this enough. Your theology matters. What you know about the word of God is so important. Knowing your lesson is good, but if you never read the story in the scriptures, you're missing out on what the Holy Spirit might want to reveal to you that he didn't reveal to the writers of the curriculum. So know the word of God is huge, huge, huge. Number four is this relationship and participatory experience is king. I mentioned relationship a little bit earlier, but let me put now put it in this context. The digital generation sees real activities and personal interactions as novelty. And in many ways, because of what they do in the virtual world is limitless, what happens in the real world can seem boring. 
I can pull up a phone and I can decorate myself with pictures and stickers in a way that I can't in real life. I can engage with other cultures, other communities in a way that I can't in real life. So there's a, a myth, there is a feeling that real life is boring. But the truth of the matter is that the digital will never replace the depth of relationship with an individual in person and the depth of what can be seen when you start walking slowly through nature. And so to create experiences where relationship is really fostered and where people get out and are actively participating in the learning is huge. Um, so, so don't miss that. Spend a few minutes with a child that values, uh, uh, they spend a few minutes with a child and they will know that you value them and it will change the relationship in a huge way. Uh, remember a little bit earlier, I talked about these kids who were, the dad came and said that they were being bullied. Well, I, I had seen them before, but I went and made a point to sit down as they were talking and I just asked some questions. Hey, how was your week? What did you do? And they began to show me what, was, what they had done, what they made. They were telling stories that I knew were not true. In fact, they one pulled out this colorful children's Bible and said, I painted all of these pictures. I'm like, sure you did. <laughs> you know, it was printed at a publishing house. There's no way you painted those pictures. But like, that's awesome. You did a great job. The next week. The girl comes in and she's drawn, she's written me a letter. I posted on the Assemblies of God Kids Pastors page a couple days ago. She goes, Pastor Mark, you, you, you're the best. You know, you're up on the stage, which she didn't spell it right. And you've got Jesus, you've got the Bible. Why? Because I took five minutes to slow down on a Sunday morning with the kid who had said to their parents, I've been bullied. I asked their name. I got their story. That value of relationship is huge. You may not be able to do that for everybody in your ministry, but you should certainly have leaders who are making that a priority. So teach your leaders how to build relationship during ministry times. Value weekly commitment over occasional serving. There is something spiritual that happens to people when they serve. And we, short, we, we sell them short if all we do is put them in a slot on a Sunday morning Sometimes people will grow only because they serve. And so if you will say, man, I want you on my team because I want to watch you grow as you minister to kids, they, will, they may rise to the occasion and say, um, maybe I'm real busy. All right, well, let's figure that out. Let's find, but find value, the consistency in relationship. Again, we said it earlier, but they may be the only consistent thing that happens in, in that child's life during, during the week. Um, what if regular attendance are broken into groups uh, with segments during the Bible story? And so, you know what, this midweek, we're going to divide into groups and every leader had a smartphone and you all gave, gave each one of them a different Bible lesson and said, I want you to put together a video that teaches the Bible story. We're going to play it on Sunday, right? Now you're engaging the media. You've got small group interactivity. They're having fun. Why? Because kids are creators. Look at the YouTube generation. They want to create. So what if we were to harness that in small groups and then leverage that for a Sunday morning? Think about the attendance. If on Wednesday night they create a, a video and they knew it was going to be played on Sunday, guess who's coming on Sunday, right? And then guess what they go home and talk to mom and dad about? They played my video. He taught my video. So that could be a huge way to rethink even what happens during your ministry time if you've got the leaders and the ability to make that happen. Now, Obviously, you know, think through all of the, the legal issues and, and what happens and, you, you know, figure all that stuff out. Do anything, anything weird, but it's good to know. Second, secondly, related to that is this. Traditional ministries like Royal Rangers, Girls Ministries, Junior Bible Quiz, BGMC, they've got a lot of components in them that kids are still really attracted to. Because of the digital world, they may have never done things in reality that they've tried to do online. And you can teach them how to do that through those ministries. And then again, use that as a way to facilitate discipleship. Empower leaders with questions that foster conversation. I love to prime my leaders on Sunday mornings with questions to ask the kids as they're interacting that are directly related to the lesson on a Sunday morning. So we're in a series right now called Brave. And uh, so maybe I would be asking, asking the leaders, ask the kids what's something that they've done that showed that they were very brave. A couple of weeks ago, I showed a video of Manny Melendez and I riding the pterodactyl as it dropped over the gorge out there in Colorado Springs. I'm like, this is when I was brave. You have stories. Kids have stories. If you ask them questions, you get a little picture into their world 
you get to know them. So give them the questions to ask ahead of time. And create moments when kids can express themselves. Um, that's huge. Pentecostal churches should be one of the best places that kids can come to express themselves and have experiences. Um, what if your worship services, when you got to kind of the more reflective style of worship, you had places around the room where they could go and write their prayers or they could write their own psalm one Sunday, say, we're going to write a psalm. We're going to read a psalm. Now I want you to write. And everyone comes and writes a statement on a piece of paper of worship and praise to God during the worship time. What if you included prayer? What if there were things that they said, I want to get rid of, and they would write it down and they throw it in the garbage during worship. They're expressing themselves experientially. Let me just give you a little clue here too. This is one of the best ways to know what's going on in the heart of a child. If I've seen this. I worked with a church once that um, they just created these kind of sticky boards. It was just a, a big kind of a felt board type of thing with sticky notes. And during worship, they'd say, write down your prayer and put it up on the board. And all of the sudden, all of the sudden, um, at the end of that service, I walk over to that board and I'm looking at what God's doing in their heart because they've expressed it. On one week, I got a picture of what God was doing in the hearts of these kids because they wrote it on a sticky note during a worship service and put it up on a board. Kids are creators. They want to participate. So let's find ways to get them out of their rows and into circles or even little bouncing dots around the room. Let's find ways to engage kids relationally. So four trends, gender issues are not going away anytime soon. Regular attendance is going to, the decline is going to continue. Uh, religiously involved parents choose a church because of the children's ministry and relationship and participatory experience is king. I've taken quite a bit of our hour on this, but I do want to pause. Maybe we'll have to do a part B and come back and do some of the leadership things down the road, but I'm here as long as you guys want, but let me pause here, turn over to Sean or ask any, any questions and comments you guys have. No, man, this has been so rich, man. I, <clears throat> this is, the meat of what I was hoping for tonight, these trends. So let me just open it up. Does anybody have any questions about any of these four trends that Mark mentioned, or maybe another trend that you're seeing that you would like him to maybe share a little bit about from his perspective and what he's seeing around the nation? Just go ahead and unmute and ask away. Uh, hey, hey, Mark, I got a question for you. I have a, um, how do you connect with a child, uh, not a child, a leader that their child is LGBTQ spectrum? How do you connect with that leader and their uh, little tiny backstory? They're open about it. They're okay with their child making that transition. Yeah, great question, Taylor. And by the way, good to see you again. Last time I saw you, I think you were up in uh, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. So welcome to the lower 48. Um, let me ask the question back to you, um, maybe back to this room for, for perspective. Um, we view LGBTQ differently because the culture is presented in a different way, that it needs to be accepted and embraced. How would you respond to a parent who believed that, that their child stealing is okay? How would you respond to a parent whose child uh, being a bully is okay? So when we, when we create a separate class for LGBTQ, we begin to treat those people almost as, as they want us to. And we, so, so that's number one, is we have to make sure that we treat it the same way. And how would you treat those things? You would love the person, but you would help them understand from scripture what the Bible says, okay? Let's take the woman caught in adultery. We don't know if she believed that adultery was okay or not. We don't know if that was what she was caught in and it was the only way that she, I mean, we have no idea. We have no way of knowing that. But what we know is that the scriptures tell us she was caught in adultery. We also know what Jesus' response was compared to the religious leaders. The religious leaders brought her before Jesus, and they were trying to use her as an example rather than dealing with the sin. What happens is this. The Bible is, according to James, is a mirror. It reflects what's in a man, right? And so primarily the word of God is used for us to see how do we need to see what we need to do. And it hangs on two laws. 
The two laws are this, love God and love others. So if you had this picture hanging, I'll use my phone as a, you had this picture hanging on there, and this is the word of God, hanging on a, a, this is, this right here is where it's hanging on the wall. Love God, love others. You pull out that nail, the picture, the mirror falls to the ground and it shatters into 613 pieces. Why 613? Because that's how many rabbinical laws there were, okay? So what the Pharisees did is they picked up one of those laws, one of those shards of the mirror and said, look, Jesus, the Bible says you should not commit adultery. This woman was caught in adultery. What should we do? What were they missing? They were missing the context of love God, love others. And as we try to approach the LGBTQ community, we have to remember it's love God, love others first. Does that mean we accept it? No. We love God, we love others. What did Jesus do then? He got down. He identified with that woman. We spend time trying to figure out what he wrote in the sand. It's irrelevant. What happened is he got into her level. He identified with her. He got compassion with her. So he restored relationally where the wounds were. That's key. Why are people embracing this LGBTQ? Because somewhere along the lines, their story of who they are got twisted from being a child of God to being identified by their gender. And so we have to help restore that. That's not something that happens necessarily overnight. Jesus had the power to restore instantly. So Jesus restored relationally first, but secondly, he said, go and sin no more. So there is a part of this that we have to make sure that we're not only dealing with the sin, but we are first doing it in the context of love God and love others. And by the way, the most important thing to use scripture for is self-evaluation. And so if we, as parents are coming in, if we can encourage them to study the scriptures, if we can let them know that we love them unconditionally, but just like any other sin, God doesn't leave us there. He journeys with us and says, go and sin no more. Is their mind going to be changed? Maybe not. Here's what's scary part. If the church doesn't step into this space, the kids are hearing it in the school. So when the kids become parents of their own, if the church has been silent, they will believe that is the correct answer. And so we have to step in and help the kids understand there is a different way. You may be in a home situation where your mom and dad teach something different. You may be questioning it yourself. And I want you to know, this is a place that we, we would rather have you question it here than anywhere else in the world. But at the same time, this is what the word of God would say to us about who you are and what his plans are for your life. So that would be a, a little bit of a, an insight for you on, on that specific question. Okay, okay. There's question. something came in. <clears throat> mentioned earlier with something like, it's our job to help a biblically illiterate home in a biblical world. I love this. Yes. Oh, you're just comments. That wasn't a question. Sorry, I stopped to read the comment. Yeah. But I yeah, also said I was going to give you a yeah, link. Think- Let me send you that link here. Yeah, go ahead, Manny. I, I was just quoting you earlier, Mark. That's what you said, I believe, and in, in early on. Uh, man, I love that quote. I mean, these like this family for Taylor, you know, in their mind, they think this is right, but it's they're biblically illiterate. We've got to teach them that. And and man, I, I just love that quote. That was good. Manny, go ahead. You had a, had a question. Yeah, so uh, actually, it's in regards to your comment. Um, Regarding James Emery White, he had also talked about, because this generation is the first post-Christian generation to exist, uh, we're dealing with families that don't come every week. What do we do, not just in terms of LGBTQ, but uh, just so many other factors in the fact that, uh, well, he mentions a book that um, about Generation Z, that to say the Bible says doesn't carry the same value and weight that it would in this circle, in this, in this auditorium right now. It's true. And so yep. how do we frame the conversations where, especially in regards to the, you know, Taylor's comment, the parents may not start with the foundation of, you know, the Bible says, so you're not only dealing with the child's identity, but the parents acceptance of it. And, and the foundation that their point of view is valid because that's what they believe. And it doesn't really matter what the Bible says. Right. Yeah. Good point. So one of the good things, um, you know, we have a, an increasingly atheistic um, uh, society that we're building, you know, don't believe in God. But it, I wouldn't say it's it's growing as an antagonistic atheism. 
um, it's a it's an ignorant atheism because they've never been presented with God before. And so that changes the landscape of the conversation significantly. If someone says, man, I've studied the Bible, I know the Bible, and uh, I know it's supposed to be true, and I've walked away from it, uh, that's a totally different conversation than I've never read the Bible. No one's ever taught me the Bible. It's a different starting place. And so I think that helps us a little bit in this post-Christian era is that there can almost be a rediscovery of the Bible. So, so what does that mean in the church, though? We have to help them discover it. Um, the, the trend of um, putting scriptures on the screen isn't bad, but what if it were augmented with helping people find the scriptures in their actual Bibles? Um, what if when we would teach the, the, the Bible to children, we would hold a physical Bible in our hands? What if when children brought their Bibles on Sunday mornings as part of a pre-service activity, the leaders would go around and say, let me help you find where our Bible story is going to be from today. So they could put a marker in there and they could slow down to find where that is. What if we would help them memorize the 66 books of the Bible? As we talk about themes that you'd repeat for multiple weeks, what if every single week when you would preach, there would be a nugget of a, an apologetic of why we trust the Bible that would be laid in there? So the number of manuscripts, the, um, the fact that God wrote it, the fact that it's, all, it's 100% true, the fact that God never, never lies. I mean, all of these things are pieces that you could weave into service times to help take little bits of bites into this convincing this, uh, that the word of God is true and applicable for life. The other thing is this, um, and I, this, is, this is something that I would encourage. It's, when I do a camp, um, camps I've done in the last couple of years, um, I've just kind of made a statement that I have the kids repeat. It's um, uh, one, life with Jesus, and they say is an adventure. I want them to know that and adventures aren't always fun. Sometimes they're dangerous. Sometimes they're scary, but it's always an adventure and he's always with us. The second thing I say is this. What, I ask the question, what are we going to do? And they answer what the Bible says. So whenever we read the scripture, if the, Bible's, the Bible says we're going to forgive one another, we're going to pause. So, you know, if we're going to do what the Bible says, let's forgive. Who, who do you need to forgive? And you ask the question from the scripture so that you're reinforcing to these kids. There, this is not a quick, you know, we're going to fix it overnight. This is a long-term answer. This is why kids ministry today is so vitally important because 20 years from now, our job will be a lot easier if we do our job right today. When they grow up and have kids of their own, we will reap the benefit of helping them know the word of God, even if in the home, it's not going to be reinforced the way we'd like it to be. We can make a difference in that regard. So we assume too much about the Bible. To back to your question, Manny, we assume they know that it was God inspired. We assume that they know that there were 66 books written in a different culture, but they have one common thread about our, our um, depravity and that God created us, that we fell, that he's redeemed us, and there's going to be a, a return of Jesus one day. We assume all of these things, and we can no longer assume those, but we have to help them understand how the pieces fit together. It's a crucial, that was a great question. It's a crucial conversation. Anybody else? Um have a question or a thought, a trend? All right, let me ask you one question, Mark. And then, yeah. um, you know, again, it's 8.30. You guys, uh, I want to respect your time. We're, we can continue this as long as you need to stay. If you need to bow out, that's totally understandable. Uh, Mark, I want to ask you about special needs families. You know, we're seeing one of the things um, I was so happy at the leadership uh, meeting with you in, in Branson uh, is that there was really a conversation about uh, is your church special needs friendly? Um, really even a Facebook page about ministering to special needs families. Um, I, I have a special needs friend, uh, actually their mom and dad, it, they're great friends of ours. They have a special needs son. They do not go to church. They are believers. Um, I invited them to a church and, uh, man, got a glimpse, a very small, small glimpse of their entire life. Everyone continued to look at them. 
This was in a large church, a mega church who talks about how friendly they are to special needs families. It wasn't the staff, but it was the people around us. And literally the statement that they made was, we're never going to go back to that church because of the way they were made to be felt. So, you know, obviously that pastor, if, if I was to tell him, um, he would say 100% we're friendly to special needs. And, and they are, but the people in their church, the people that we sat around, uh, multiple families, it, it was super uncomfortable for my friends. What can we do, man? Or what are you seeing done in just training our churches to be more special needs friendly? Yeah. Um, so a, uh, you mentioned the training that was uh, released uh, just a couple couple weeks ago, um, a couple months ago, I guess, on uh, special, in, um, including children with special needs or including children with disabilities, I think is what it's called, uh, which is a, a training book that you can get uh, to go through as a self-study or get together your church and there's a facilitator's guide that once you buy the book, you can get the facilitator's guide and you can lead people through the, the whole training. So, so that would be one. Second resource I'd recommend is your special needs ministry um, by Amy Fenton Lee. It is, it is probably the number one go-to book on special needs. And it, Sean, it deals exactly with what you were saying of, you know, how do you have the conversation with parents so that they're comfortable? Um, how do you, how do you approach that with a, with a, um, a parent that maybe not realize that their kids is having some developmental challenges? How do you train your church to be accepting and to not stare and to know how to greet people? I mean, with, with, with um, even just autism as an example, the, the, the varieties of the spectrum of uh, how much kids can or can't engage and be included in the whole whole service is massive. Um, the amount of uh, work that is involved in recruiting leaders and training them is huge. So um, uh, even rooms dedicated as sensory rooms or special needs rooms, there, there's a lot to be discussed on that. But those two books are, would be probably the number one thing to to consider. But honestly, it it, it can almost be, and I don't want to I don't want to make it feel like I'm making light of of special needs. But it, it can almost be a church culture issue because if someone came in that did not look like the people who normally come to your church, we'd probably stare at them too. If they came in, you know, um, with, with tattoos or, or dressed really, I mean, if they came in, if someone who, the woman caught in adultery showed up at your church on Sunday morning, people would probably stare, right? So it almost becomes a cultural issue of how do you, how do you minister to people who are different from you? What does that look like? And certainly, probably one of the greatest places to start would be with the special needs ministries, um, because it would be the easiest way to to bring that topic up. Because um, it's it's sometimes there's just you know there it's just such a huge need, and uh, it's certainly something as another trend. And thankfully, you brought that up. It's another trend that it's it's not going away. Uh, it's going to continue to be here for a long time, um, and the church should be the place that they can come. We sometimes also, just kind of as a note, we sometimes treat the parents of children of special needs like any other parent. Well, yeah, they can come, but you have to come with them to church. Like, you don't understand. Those parents never, ever get a break. And sometimes church is the only time that they can have, you know, 90 minutes where they're not the primary caregiver of someone who's very, very needy. Um, there's a lady that comes forward for prayer every single week that, that we have an opportunity to pray for. Uh, or whenever she's there, we pray with her multiple times. Her son was born without the, the top of the, the scalp or the skull being fully formed on top of his head. So it's skin and brain. You, you know, there's no, there's no bone protecting the top of the head. And you just, you start praying for that person and you're just overwhelmed with what is this woman's life? Like this is a two-year-old child who was never supposed to survive. Should we say, well, yeah, they can come to kids ministry, but you have to come with them. You know, you have to learn how to minister to people who have children um, with special needs. So uh, it's a it's a growing need. It's a real need. And uh, I'm glad that you brought that up. Well, I hope you guys took great notes today and learned a few things. Listen, in this unique season we find ourselves in during the coronavirus outbreak, so much is changing. The new normal is yet to be determined. What is constant is we must be learning and leading this culture as well as God's church with humility 
and an understanding that only God can provide. We are here to help you guys in all that you do. Thank you for joining us around the table today. Thank you for spending time with us around the table. For more resources just like this one, visit thetableresources.com.